This is Mark Miller from DevSecOps Days. If you've read The Phoenix Project, you'll remember Brent, the indispensable cog on the operations team. Brent was a good guy. He wanted to do the right things, all of the right things, but was pulled in all directions because of the lack of a unified plan for the company's project workflow. But what if Brent didn't want to do the right thing? What if Brent was more interested in the convenience of getting his work done than he was in the overall health and output of the project? What if he deployed to production without checking into SourceSafe, not just once, but for years? I had a very special programmer on my team, it turned out, who liked to just edit everything directly on the prod web server and had not checked any code into SourceSafe in years. I went to our trusty code repository, took a copy of the most recent code, and I went looking for the bug and I couldn't even find it. And then, you know, I'm running it locally and I'm looking at the real one in prod and they're completely different. I'm like, what would have happened if I had pushed to prod? If I fixed that bug and pushed to prod and not noticed the difference? And he's like, oh, my work would have been gone. Like, that would have been your mistake. I'm like, are you kidding? He's like, it's just easier if I check it in directly. If, if I just like edit it right on the web server, it's just easier for me. I'm like, oh, is it easier to do a shitty job? No. In today's episode, Tanya Janka, cloud security advocate for Microsoft, expands on her just published article, DevSecOps, Securing Software in a DevOps World, clarifying each of the five tactics she uses to integrate not just security into the software development process, but how to manage people as part of that process. Stay with us. This is the DevSecOps Days podcast. The DevSecOps Day podcast series is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to create and maintain software applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonotype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically evaluate and track open source components with known vulnerabilities within the DevSecOps pipeline. In today's broadcast, Tanya Janka and I talk about five tactics for including security in a development pipeline. For a transcript of this show, go to DevSecOpsDays.com and click Podcasts. As a thank you for joining the community, you'll receive a free copy of our latest book, Epic Failures in DevSecOps. And now, on with today's show. What did the landscape for security look like before AppSec and development started working together? Before I met my first professional mentor, uh, I was a software developer and we mostly only dealt with security when they told us no and they wouldn't explain why and then they wouldn't help us fix it. They would just say, you can't do that. They wouldn't tell us why and they wouldn't tell us what we could do. And so I would say there wasn't really any AppSec happening. There was a lot of no from the enterprise security team. And when we asked questions, we asked Google. It wasn't until I met this ethical hacker who decided to try to make me join security. <laughs> and then I started learning more and more and more and realized how much I had never known as a software developer. Um, and so this, this article is a bit more advanced than that. 
Um, it assumes that you already know a, a bit about DevOps. And I was working for the Canadian government who used a lot of waterfall at the time. People who are doing waterfall would definitely find this article probably really confusing. How much did you identify with the security guy in the Phoenix project? I identify with having to deal with persons that are like the character in the Phoenix project. I find that I still have to deal with a lot of security types that are like that and try to explain to them that developers have deadlines and ops people need to make sure stuff is not broken. Ops people are constantly just trying to make sure everything is up. Developers are constantly trying to push out new features. If we're doing security in a way where we don't talk to anyone and we break something, we will never be allowed to do anything again. I have worked with a lot of people like that character, but I hope that I'm not like that character <laughs> because of the 17 years of software development I did before I switched to security. I feel like I still am a developer in my heart, if that makes sense. I like to think that I'm not like that, but I don't know. People that work with me would have to tell you the truth. You actually open your article talking about the DevOps handbook and you list the three ways of DevOps. You want to run through that real quick? There's many, many definitions of DevOps. There's a whole bunch of them and there's acronyms and all of this. But for me, the definition of DevOps are the three ways. And the first one is prioritizing the efficiency of the entire system, not just your part. Yeah, that comes directly from Goldratt when he wrote The Goal in 1984. You cannot optimize locally and expect the chain itself to improve. Yeah, it's so important, Mark. I've seen a lot of people where, oh, well, if we just do all of these things, it's like you broke everything else. That's not acceptable. Or not wanting to help other teams because they don't feel that it's in their mandate. And I'm like, well, if we don't get this product out, we're all out of a job. So trust me, it's in your mandate, right? And sometimes people forget, they get in their little silo. And I think number one, prioritizing speed, but it also has to do with breaking down silos because you just, you can't get as much done that way. The second thing that you talk about in the three ways is amplifying feedback loops. Yes, we want feedback as soon as possible. We want feedback to travel widely. We want to make sure that if there's a bug, we find it immediately or as soon as we possibly could have found it. Right. So sometimes it's impossible to find a bug until later because you just couldn't see it from the angle you were at, but not looking until the end. I've worked on some waterfall in the past. And by the time you show the client the thing, they're like, what is this? It's been right. a year and a half and I don't even know what the software does that you just showed me. That's not what I asked for. But if we could have showed it to them along the way and checked in with them quite often, we would have been on the same track. The new research in education itself, in school education, mm -hmm. says that immediate feedback is the best way to learn something. So what you're doing is turning your projects into learning environments. Oh, that's so, that's so true, Mark. It's so true. Yeah, every time I code something and I push it through my pipeline, it gives me all this feedback right away. I'm like, oh, I see now. I see, thanks. 
<laughs> and the third way is continuous learning. I have worked with so many people in my career that are super, super senior. They're like, I can't miss one day of work because if I do, everything will fall apart. So I can't go on training. I'm thinking in my head, yeah, the reason everything will fall apart is because it's so old and done the old way because you haven't been on training in like 10 years. Yeah, if we don't allocate time to improve. And sometimes like continuous learning isn't going on a training course, right? Sometimes it's that you're going to take something apart and put it back together because it's sort of wonky and it mostly works. And instead, you're like, that's it. I'm going to take two hours a week and try to improve this until it's actually really good and dependable and resilient. It's interesting that you talk about the person that thinks of themselves as indispensable. Mm -hmm. Because if they really are that indispensable, then something's a problem with the system. Yes. When I was a junior software developer, I remember I went on vacation for a week and I came back and a server had gone down while I was away that did all of the financial transactions for the place that I worked. And no one knew how to run it except me. And so when I came back, they hadn't done any financial transactions in four business days, which was a big deal. You know, I spent the first day, I got everything going and everyone was happy again. And my boss took me aside and he's like, listen, it's great that you're indispensable. Like that probably makes you feel good. However, if you want to be a truly perfect employee, you want to make it so everything runs great while you're not even here that would be the perfect solution. So then we brought in people more junior than me and I taught things and I scripted things and I would run fire drills. They're like, why are you doing this to us, Tanya? But then, if I, then I went on vacation again and it was fine and they knew exactly what to do. And I was like, aha. You and I were talking previously about the next volume for Epic Failures and DevSecOps. We're putting yeah. together volume two. And you, you were saying, you know, I can't think of any failures. <laughs> I tell you, there's one right there. <laughs> you make a good point. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I think it's a really good story because if someone is, in Gene Kim's terminology, the Brent of the equation that is so critical to anything that happens that the system breaks down without them, then that's a failure in itself. I remember dating a project manager who told me that if there is an employee where everything will fall apart without that employee, and then the employee that I was trying to manage at the time was really unruly and demanding and egotistical, he's like, fire that person, fire them. Because then you'll have to figure out how to manage without that person. Then finally your system will work because your system's always problematic because it all depends only on one human. And I did not fire that person, but I did start making sure we had coverage on everything and taking things away so that this person didn't have so much control. If you're seeing yourself in that position that you are the bottleneck, you're the one that everybody is relying on. At some time, you are gonna have to personally release that project out into the wild. Yeah. And you have to trust that people are gonna know what to do when you walk away. A big thing that, that really works for me is uh, documentation. <laughs> I know that's a crazy word, 
I've worked at places where they do documentation and it's 150 pages. No one's going to read that. Um, but I worked on this dev team and all we ever did was maintenance. And I, I made a new rule. Every time you open up, you know, one of those archaic legacy apps, you have to write a one pager called first info. It's like, okay, so where's the URL to the app? What's it supposed to do? Do we have the client's names and even know who owns this? You know, how do I launch the app? What is it written in? We ended up, like originally we had 10 people just doing support every single day. And we ended up getting it down to just one employee being able to support all of our custom legacy apps almost all the time without any help. Once we had like these documents, the person knew exactly what to do and we could just rotate it through our team. So once every two weeks you had to do legacy, but all of a sudden we could do projects and we were useful again. And it took around nine months to get first info on every app. It was great. What you were doing was documenting the corporate memory. Yes. And as things get more and more complex, that's going to be a critical part of this process. I totally agree. And I know so many places where they'll uh, do this big, huge amount of paperwork when they start the project, but they're do it's almost like an exercise of bureaucracy rather than documenting things that actually matter. And then they don't keep any of it up to date. I had a very special programmer on my team, it turned out, who liked to just edit everything directly on the prod web server and had not checked any code into SourceSafe in years. Yeah, and that person was away. And so I went to our trusty code repository, took a copy of the most recent code, and I went looking for the bug and I couldn't even find it. And then I, you know, I'm running it locally and I'm looking at the real one in prod and they're completely different. Oh. I'm like, what would have happened if I had pushed to prod? If I'd fixed that bug and pushed to prod and not noticed the difference. And he's like, oh, my work would have been gone. Like, that would have been your mistake. I'm like, are you kidding? He's like, it's just easier if I check it in directly. If, if I just like edit it right on the web server, it's just easier for me. I'm like, oh, is it easier to do a shitty job? No, 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 this is done now. <laughs> that was the local optimization that we were talking about. <laughs> Somebody was optimizing locally for his own convenience. Exactly, and not optimizing for the entire team and the entire process. That would have been disastrous if I had pushed that code. For years, he had just been working on the prod. And what if the prod server had gone down? Oh. The other thing that you cover in your article, and I want to go point by point on this, is you talk about the five tactics you would like to implement in your projects. The first tactic is weaponize your unit tests. So theoretically, we're all supposed to write unit tests, right? It's a test that makes sure that your code does what it's supposed to do. And that's a positive unit test. If the code is supposed to, let's say it's supposed to do a calculation, right? So you test that it does the calculation. So you put in numbers, you make sure the numbers come out the way they're supposed to. But if you weaponize your unit tests, you turn them into negative unit tests. And by that, I mean, you make sure that if you put in malicious things or improper data, that it fails in a proper way. So you shouldn't have an uncaught error, 
like you shouldn't have an exception thrown to the screen. You shouldn't go into an unknown state because that's when uh, malicious actors can make your app do things it's not supposed to. You wanna make sure that you know you don't crash the program and you wanna make sure absolutely that it, you do not allow an attacker to take control of your program. So in this instance, let's say you're running this calculation. So put in some letters. So you copy the unit test that you've created that's supposed to do the right things, test that it does the correct behavior. And then you just add malicious things to it. So that could be a semicolon or a single quote or a whole bunch of letters. And you can decide how many things you wanna do because we wanna still optimize for speed, right? So we don't wanna add like 55 unit tests for every one positive unit test. We don't wanna add 55 weaponized unit tests that will make people on your team not very pleased with you. So we have to be realistic and kind of pick and choose our battles. Once you've done this and you show the developers what you've done, it's important to talk to developers, right? We can't just go in and change their stuff. We need to actually speak to them. They're not scary. <laughs> developers are great and explain to them why you want this and then check it in with their unit tests. So then if their code gets changed, you know, they have to update their unit tests, which means you or they will have to update your negative unit tests. But every time they check in their code and run it through the pipeline, they should be running these unit tests, which means you have regressive security testing, which is extremely exciting if you think about it, Mark, because unit tests run so fast. So even if you only have 15% coverage of your unit tests, you would still have 15% security regression testing, assuming you matched each one of their tests with at least one test of your own. We hope, everyone hopes that we get better coverage than 15%. Like ideally people hope for 70% or higher in industry, but I know that a lot of places like struggle to get to 50% coverage, but I'll take what I can get. And if a developer hasn't written any unit tests, it's unlikely the security person's gonna come along and write them for them. That's probably unrealistic expectation. So I try to recommend that we just match whatever the developers have done, because it's a lot of work. The second tactic that you talk about, which is close to my heart, is oh, yes. verify the security of your third-party components. I feel that if you're only gonna do one of these, you absolutely should do this one. This is the most important one. In my article, I quote that third-party components make up to 50% of your code. However, the estimates are actually much, 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 much higher than that. I just couldn't find any quotes that I felt looked reliable that were above 50%, but I know that in a lot of my apps, it's 70 or 80% just libraries. A lot of developers forget things, even our libraries, like, oh, I'm just using some jQuery. That's a third-party component. And some of the versions of jQuery have known vulnerabilities in them. So you should use one of the versions that does not, probably the newest one. This is also really fast. So in your pipeline, it doesn't slow everything down too badly. And yes, the company that Mark works for makes a tool that does a great job of this. There's a whole bunch of different companies that makes tools that do this of varying quality. So not all of them are good. If you have the money and or time, I suggest using two. Companies. I saw that. That was interesting that you had mentioned, don't count on one project 
it's almost like you're getting a second opinion when a doctor tells you to cut your leg off. Yes, exactly. But also because each one of them checks in a different way. So for instance, dependency check from OWASP, the way that they check for vulnerabilities is very, very different than a lot of the other tools. And so I've been trying to use it with .NET Core as opposed to ASP.NET. Mm -hmm. It's not great. <laughs> um, and so instead I've been using other tools to check because it, it just kept saying, everything's great. Also, you have no dependencies. I'm like, well, that's not true. So I'm using a bunch of NuGet packages, jQuery, I forget what else. And it's telling me I don't have any dependencies. I'm like, no, I'm counting 11 with my eyes. Not every tool does a great job of whatever framework or programming language you're using, but also each one of them checks in different ways. And so a lot of the more advanced products, like ones you pay for, tend to check more than one database for vulnerabilities. Checking just one's definitely not great because they're not all reported to the same places. Some of the uh, companies, especially the ones that don't make a free product, they have security researchers that are looking through these things and are much more proactive than waiting for it to get into the common vulner uh, vulnerability enumerator database. When a security researcher finds a really big bug in something like, let's say they find a really big bug in jQuery because we keep talking about it, then they report it. And then jQuery has 90 days to figure out what to do about it. And then they release a patch and then they put it in the CVE database. And that can take way longer than 90 days. Sometimes that can take a year. And in that meantime, it's still wicked vulnerable. If that security researcher found it, maybe another security researcher found it who is not as nice, <laughs> who maybe has flexible morals. And maybe that person is going to use that zero day because it's not publicly known yet. There's no fix available for it. It's a zero day. And maybe they're going to use it for nefarious reasons, right? So if you are... Um, paying for a product that is going to check for vulnerable third-party components, I feel like a bit more likely that they have more staff working on it. Uh, yeah. Open source project, and you better believe it, we don't have any staff or any money, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, and people are like, oh, you know, you haven't fixed this thing and that. I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> right, right. You, know, you might not realize it, but we actually have 65 researchers on staff oh. that are doing that. We have access to the vulnerability databases that everybody else does. But also we have researchers going full time that are doing this too. So there are ways that this can be handled. There are teams that are doing this. And the big thing that most people don't realize that the researchers are really well aware of is when a vulnerability is announced to the public about a specific component, the problem itself might not be with the component. As you said, these components have dependencies. Yep. And the problem might be in a dependency that's six layers deep, but you wouldn't know that from the announcement. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The announcement's being super late. The announcement's not necessarily giving you all the details that you need. Derek Weeks found out when he does the software supply chain report on a yearly basis, one of the things that he's following 
is that what is the time from when a vulnerability is found to when the criminal hackers are using it versus when a patch is actually made across the industry. The difference is unconscionable in that people that ha don't have your best interest at heart can mm -hmm. actually have something up and running within a matter of hours now to take advantage of that announced vulnerability where we can see the meantime to repair can be three, six months down the road. So there's a window of that amount of time where the industry is hackable. Well, and even once they release the patch, I'm sure you know, and I'm sure a lot of our audience knows, people just, they're not on top of their patching. And I used to work somewhere where we had Patch Thursday. Everyone's heard of Patch Tuesday when Microsoft, a lot of other companies released their patches but they wouldn't be able to do testing and everything and actually get production time until Thursday night. And a lot of nefarious actors, what they do is they download the patch, they reverse engineer it, and then they start creating attacks right away. Oh, almost all attacks that are successful don't even use zero days, right? Stuff, the patches exist. It's just that people aren't putting the patches. I'm pretty excited about DevOps in that it creates an opportunity for much, much, much faster patching and testing and getting things out so that at least when a patch really is available, we can actually use it. When we see that there's a third-party component that is vulnerable, we can actually upgrade it. I worked somewhere that was using struts. All I did was incident response, as you might imagine. <laughs> We had 2,000 separate Struts apps. It's like a disaster that was on fire. And every single one of them used a new version of Struts. They're like, well, for us to upgrade that framework, like we're going to need eight to 10 months. Like, what? You know, I what? think it's getting better, though. Meaning when I first started doing this five years ago, mm -hmm. when you would talk to somebody and say, how many open source components are you using? And they would say, oh, I don't know. But a lot of them would say, well, we don't use open source. Well, you can call bullshit on that right away, whether yeah. they know it or not. Mm -hmm. And then it started where we started contacting and talking to people down the years. They started using Excel spreadsheets to keep a list of the components that they were using. Well, that was out of date as soon as they put it into the list, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And so what we're looking at is the ability to actually track and monitor components after they're placed into production. That alleviates a lot of this problems that you're talking about. If you've got 200 struts applications, how in the hell are you gonna know where those are located and mm -hmm. what struts version is in it if it's not an automated part of your process? Exactly. And a lot of these tools, you can add it to your, your pipeline, but you can also actually just have them scan it every day, just scan your code repository, which causes no downtime and no latency for you. It costs you nothing in regards to slowdown. And if something new comes out in that time, they'll send you an email and be like, Tanya, look here, look here, look here. This has happened. You are using this. We need you to know now. I think it's such a huge win. It's, it's such a huge win for such a low cost. Tactic number three is audit the state of your systems and your settings. 
Yeah, that's not what I called it at first, but that's what people <laughs> ended up. I had so many editors on this because it was four times too long for the article when I started. But basically, uh, you want to make sure that all your patches are there if you're using a VM or if you're using a container. You want to make sure that it is not a known vulnerable container. You want to make sure your config is set up properly, whether it's a VM or a container. Um, if you're using a platform as a service, you kind of don't need to worry about that. But you do need to worry about your encryption status. So what is the length of your keys? Are you using safe algorithms or old broken algorithms? When does your um, certificate expire? Do you have a proper certificate? You want to make sure you're forcing HTTPS for everything ever. Basically, like checking your encryption settings. Uh, and then you want to make sure that you're using security headers. I am a huge fan of security headers. I consider them the seatbelts of coding. They're not sexy, but they take a millisecond to use. They're a good habit. And then if an emergency happens, the security header will protect you against so many things. Like using security headers will make it so that if someone does attack you or you do have a vulnerability in your code, it can minimize the damage. I feel they're really important. I have done many different videos about security headers because I'm very excited about them. I feel almost like this should be called like the hygiene of your, your configurations. How do we as an industry place so much trust into third party vendors as opposed to when you think about Facebook and Apple and all of the listening and the data release problems we've been seeing. Yes. What makes us think that these platforms are any better when it comes to creating software? I actually do this cloud native security workshop. And in it, we talk about all sorts of different things. And then I bring up this big thing on the screen and it's just it just says the word trust. And then I ask the audience, why do you think that some people don't want to move to public cloud? And then we talk about trust issues for sometimes 45 minutes and all the different reasons that so many people are really concerned. The audiences have taught me a ton, so many different threat models or, or ideas of things that they're concerned about. Like, what if my ex works there? Are they going to look at my stuff? That's a fascinating one. Topics that come up blow my mind. It's it's my favorite part of the whole workshop. And especially if people are quite comfortable, by it, like the smaller the group, usually the more comfortable everyone is with talking openly about the things that worry them. I, I have to say though, that public cloud is like a billion dollar industry. Each one of the cloud providers know that if they screw it up, that the industry will fail and that they will put a lot of money into something and not get money back, right? It would be a bad investment. If, if there are enough failures, people just won't use it. Like there's a, like the public votes with their dollars. I know from my previous jobs before this where I would do pen testing. So I would, you know, smash apps, but then also, you know, whenever you smash an app, they're like, also, could you just like scan everything? So I go scan all the networks and everything. and the state of the systems that I would scan shocked me. There was a web a load balancer facing the web that had Microsoft Office 2003 installed. 
you've had this web server since 2003. Like you've had this load balancer since then. And they're like, no. I'm like, who installed Office on your, that's facing the internet? And it's super old, so it's wildly insecure, right? And they're like, do you think we should patch it? I'm like, what are you writing short stories on your low balancer? No, you should remove it. But they had no idea how it got there. It had been there for years. It's super, super vulnerable. Have you ever had anyone scan anything before me? Like, well, am I the first person here? Has no one considered security? Like, they had like so many. Um, way worse things than that that I've, I've seen and it, it like oh did you know you have all these servers outside your firewall that are on the internet tactic four add dynamic application security testing dast to your pipeline so as someone that likes breaking things dynamic application security testing in my opinion is really fun so that's where your application is running on a web server so ideally you would do this in dev or QA, not in prod, and you point some sort of scanner at it, like OS, uh, attack proxy, or burp suite, or there's so many acunetics, app scan, app spider, et cetera, et cetera. I call it choo choo. <laughs> it just throws, it fuzzes, it fuzzes all of your inputs and, and it attacks it as best it can, and then it gives you a report. This can be quite slow. This can be kind of time consuming. So I have two suggestions for this specifically is perhaps just run this in passive mode. So everything goes through it as a web proxy. It, so it sees all of your requests and responses and then it tells you for sure what it sees that's wrong. So you're missing the security header, cookies have bad settings. That looks like a password in clear text, that's bad, et cetera. And you can put that in your pipeline and then you can run an asynchronous version of this that runs after or in a parallel security pipeline or elsewhere, and then have it do more intense testing and have it run the full gambit of everything and then have that report back to you after. Asynchronous testing is sort of important in a pipeline because if you are only given eight minutes for all of your tests, you will use all eight of them on this. But if you do passive, so no fuzzing, no interactive tests, it just watches the requests and the responses. What that means is it'll be wicked, wicked fast. So, so fast. It'll get you results that are for sure accurate, almost for sure accurate. And then you can have it do the other stuff elsewhere. You still get the report after, right? And you see if there is something super dangerous, but most obvious things will be caught with the passive scanning. Um, Cause sometimes you still need a pen tester to come in and actually punch things in the face <laughs> and do like thorough, thorough, thorough testing. But being able to run passive testing at least with your DAS tools, if you like really ups the ante on your security, you will find things for sure. And then you, you set your pipeline. Okay, so if I have any highs, break the build. If I have more than two mediums, break the build. If I have more than 10 lows, break the build. And you can, you can also tune this tool to make sure, you know, if you found something wrong. So I have OWASP SAP running the full gambit of tests in my pipeline because my open source project OWASP dev slop is not a real, it's not like a production use app. It's just our proof of concept. So I have it run the whole thing and 
there's a false positive in it. So I had Simon Bennett's on the guy that it leads the project for Zap, and then we tuned Zap. We made a video of how to remove false positives, which is a thing that's really, really important as a security person. You really cannot have false positives coming up, wasting your developer's time. So the first time you and you find out something as a false positive, you need to make sure it does not show up in the pipeline anymore. So I made a little video about that to help people tune their their stuff. Tactic number five: add static application security testing (SAST) to your pipeline. Static application security testing. A lot of people have had discussions with me about my controversial decision to put this in here and also my controversial decision to not put in IAST. Um, so I'm a computer science major and I had to write a compiler. That's a thing that they torture the students with. And part of a compiler is it parses your code. So it breaks it up into chunks and then it makes it smaller, smaller, smaller until you know it's zeros and ones. So a stack application security testing tool will parse your code into chunks and then try to figure out where there could be patterns that could make things insecure and result in insecure code. And also it will find obvious things, like things that we know are quite insecure, like some of the string functions in C and C++ are just known wildly insecure and you should just not use them, right? So it'll alert you to very obvious things. And then it'll alert you to memory leaks and other poor code things, but it takes forever SAST is slow, while dynamic application security testing could take minutes or even hours, depending. SAST could take hours or even days because it is very, very slow. SAST is also like criticized quite a lot because it will give you over 90% false positives, right? Some people say it's almost only false positives, but mm. here's my opinion on this. So if I'm gonna review a whole bunch of code, let's say it's 20,000 lines. If I'm looking for security stuff, I'm just gonna look at the security things. You know, there's a login, I'll look at that. Any sort of like input validation, I'm gonna look at that or ensure that it exists in the right places. But then I'm not theoretically gonna look at the rest of the code, which means I'll miss lots of things. And it means it's gonna take forever because I'm doing it manually. And that means I have to look at, let's say there's 20,000 lines of code, I have to look at half of it. So I have to look at 10,000 lines of code and you have to go through and follow patterns, et cetera. But if you use SAST and then of 20,000 lines of code, it says it thinks it found 200 things. That means I only have to look at 200 things. And then yes, there's only actually, you know, 15 things that were wrong, but it's still faster if that makes sense. And it will find more things that I could not have found with only my eyes. Like I definitely would never wanna do a manual code review only and call it a day and say, I know for sure this app is secure, but also I'm not, I'm not great at code review. I've only done like a few and I did find things wrong. However, I didn't feel confident. I found every single thing possible that could ever have been wrong. For SAS, I suggest that either one, Again, you just do like the most basic tests in your pipeline or you run it asynchronously. So you have it go off and do the tests and come back and tell you later. Or three, which is why I talk about in this article, is you only look for one type of vulnerability. So for instance, SAST is great at finding injection vulnerabilities or cross-site scripting vulnerabilities 
And basically everyone loves programming cross-site scripting into their apps, they just don't know it. Whenever I test anywhere, I'm like, oh, look at all this fun cross-site scripting. It's everywhere, every place I've ever worked, one of their top three vulnerabilities is cross-site scripting. We find it in almost every single first pass on every single app. It's very popular. When you run your SaaS, you just set it to only look for one bug class, so one type of vulnerability. It goes through and it finds those things. You put that in the bug tracker, you have them fix it. And then once they fix those, you stop looking for it and then you start looking for another bug class. So injection or something else, right? Or cross-site request forgery. So are they passing tokens or are they not passing tokens when you think they should? And if you can go through like with each different sprint and change to a different bug class, then that's a way that you could actually get SAS testing done in your pipeline and not make every single developer very, very upset with you. <laughs> I feel it's really, really important when we do these activities that we remember you know, the first way of DevOps, which is efficiency and speed. And also like giving feedback fast. If we're doing all of the entire SAS plethora of things that they look for, it's going to be a very long time and the coders are gonna get feedback in three weeks instead of three hours. I feel like this is a way that we could try really hard to respect the two first ways of DevOps. In the conclusion of your article, you say using these five tactics, adding these processes to your pipeline will result in the production of infinitely more secure applications. Is that why you wrote this article? What do you hope people will do after reading this? I want people to put security tools in their pipeline so badly. <laughs> I feel like I've, I've met so many security people that want to basically not work with developers and want to make security activities completely separate than this quote unquote DevOps thing. I really believe that if security people get on board and kind of get right in the middle of DevOps, which is why I call it DevSecOps, if they can get right in there with them and participate with them, we could have so much better results for Dev and Ops, like us not breaking everything so the Ops people are pleased with us and us speeding up our activities and getting feedback faster to developers so we're not ticking them off and then we're actually creating more secure software like i i've worked uh, i worked at one place and they had two secure code reviews and two pen tests done on this one big app and it took forever and we found things way at the very very end of the software development life cycle we didn't have time to fix most of the bugs and of course my dev team like marked all these things as fixed that weren't really fixed and they're like we don't have time for this crap you can't come in with two weeks to launch and tell us you have to rewrite everything. It's not happening. And I feel really strongly that we need to push left, start security earlier, do it the whole way through in the system development lifecycle. And I, I really hope with this article that people feel that adding security to their pipeline is possible. And even if they just do one of these things, I would be so much happier than them doing no things. I guess I'm just trying to make it easier and make people feel like it's possible and that they can do it. If people really take to heart what you're saying in the article, is there a place that they can see you actually implement this or do this live? Yes. The entire OWASP 
DevSlop project team are all going to AppSec Global in Tel Aviv, Israel in, uh, at the end of May. Nancy Garishay and I are going to do a talk where we actually go through these five steps live and explain them. And then we also have our YouTube channel where you can actually see the videos of us implementing these things. So we're gonna demo all of them live on stage. And then if you wanna see how we actually implemented, like what to click, how did we decide on which tool, you can see us regularly on our YouTube channel and like we stream on Mixer and Twitch. If you're going to AppSec Global, definitely come see us at the project showcase where you can just ask us questions all day or come see the talk with Nancy Garishe and I. I'm really excited to present with her. For a transcript of this show, go to devsecopsdays.com and click podcasts. As a thank you for joining the community, you'll receive a free copy of our latest book, Epic Failures in DevSecOps.